This is the 166th Quack Cast, plus or minus two or three. Rapid Weaver, the program I use for distributing this particular podcast, numbers them differently than I do. It's called, What Should We Do in the Absence of Evidence? For every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. H.L. Mencken, probably the greatest American writer of all time, after Mark Twain. Despite my multiple personalities, it seems that only the OCD doctor gets anything done. The goth cowgirl persona? Lazy. And the NBA playoffs are sucking up an inordinate amount of time. Go Blazers. Just not very far. Sigh. But what are you going to do? Work needs doing and someone has to do it. This is a week of deadlines. In June, I am giving a series of talks at the SMAC conference in Chicago, and I have to have my talks ready to go. So sometimes, to meet all my deadlines, I need to repurpose other material. Spoiler alert. If you're going to be at SMAC and listen to my lectures, stop listening here. Everything I am going to say at SMAC is about to follow. And really, even if you are going to SMAC, this is a content-free podcast. You might be better off spending your time elsewhere. My topic is, what should we do in the absence of evidence? It is often said that only 15% of medical practice is evidence-based. That, of course, is a myth, and an outdated myth at that, based on a survey from 1961. Like all myths, it has staying power, and people like to repeat the factoid without bothering to see if it is actually true. It isn't. The real data suggests we do a pretty good job at following evidence as long as we are not TV doctors. Quote, the published results show an average of 37.02, that's accuracy, of interventions are supported by randomized clinical trial. They show an average of 76% of interventions are supported by some form of compelling evidence. There is variability depending on the specialty and how you judge the evidence. Anesthesiologists do the best, but then they have the least to do. There is always evidence. There are more than 23 million citations on PubMed and 799 million hits searching medicine on Google. It is not a lack of evidence that is the problem. It is more likely that the practitioner doesn't know the evidence or that the evidence may suck. I tend to get consults for odd or unusual infections for which there is little data beyond case reports and the antibiotic susceptibility. So I'm used to dealing with supporting data that is sparse at best. I often say that part of being a specialist is being ignorant with style. So, what to do? First, don't panic and carry a towel. Most of the time there is no hurry to intervene in whatever process is making the patient ill. You usually have time to sort things out. As the saying goes, at a cardiac arrest, the first procedure is to take your own pulse. Most of the pressure comes not from the patient and their disease, but the systems that no longer allow the slow, methodical evaluation of disease. The old definition of fever of unknown origin was two weeks in the hospital with a fever, truly a fantasy in modern medicine. Madeline would have had her admission denied. So take your time. Watch and wait. Much of the time when you do nothing, eventually the answer becomes obvious. 
As the proverb says, the delivery of good medical care is to do as much nothing as possible. And my favorite proverb, muddy water, let stand, will clear. The just don't stand there, do something that drives an intern and becomes don't just do something, stand there that I specialize in. And my wife can vouch for me. I am most excellent at doing nothing. Besides, I learned as a resident that if you have no data to support an intervention, you are more likely to cause harm than to do good. I have no data to support that assertion and have never found a reference. So it is one of the innumerable bits of unvalidated wisdom I have picked up over the years. Medicine should be neither like Nike, just do it, nor a chimp throwing crap at the wall and seeing what sticks. Often the correct intervention is uncertain because you do not have a diagnosis. The best thing to be done is to retake the history, looking for hints in the pattern of disease or other risk for odd diseases. Then Google and PubMed everything, especially the odder aspects of the case. It is amazing how often Google will come up with the right diagnosis, or at least point you in the right direction. And once you have the right diagnosis, then you can proceed with the right therapy. But be skeptical. It is easy to become enamored of a diagnosis and treatment. And do not let advertising terms guide therapies. There are only four absolutes in medicine, with no exceptions. Ever. One absolute is anyone who routinely wears their scrubs outside the hospital is a dick. Another is anyone who uses strong, big gun, or powerful as an adjective about antibiotics is an idiot who knows nothing about the treatment of infections. These are advertising adjectives, providing false comfort but no real benefit. Don't do an intervention just to make yourself feel good. It's really okay to say, I don't know what to do, as long as you have a plan with how to proceed. But let's say you have a problem for which there is uncertainty as to the proper intervention. There are no guidelines or your particular patient doesn't match the population in the studies. When I was a resident, all the data for cardiovascular treatments appeared to come from the VA in old, white, smoking males. Do the results apply to other populations? Maybe. Maybe not. Well, now what? You can try to reason from basic principles of anatomy, physiology, etc. Of course, you can't do that if you're an alternative medicine practitioner because they ignore anatomy, physiology, etc. In infectious diseases, it is kind of sort of easy. If the drug kills the organism in the test tube and gets into the infected space, it should work, especially if you can drain the pus. Other diseases are not so easy. When in doubt, should the disease get steroids? Well, there's probably no disease, including Cushing syndrome, for which steroids are not considered by someone, despite a lack of supporting data. But at the end of the day, you need to fire up Chrome and go looking for evidence, such as it might be. So then you have to consider the published literature. What are the levels of evidence, besides evidence-based medicine? Well, there is eminence-based medicine. The more senior the colleague, the less importance he or she placed on the need for anything as mundane as evidence. Experience, it seems, is worth any amount of evidence. These colleagues have a touching faith in clinical experience, which has been defined as making the same mistakes with increasing confidence over an impressive number of years. The eminent physician's white hair and balding pate are also called the halo effect. Vehemence-based medicine. 
The substitution of volume for evidence as an effective technique for browbeating your more timorous colleagues and for convincing relatives of your ability. Eloquence-based medicine. The year-round suntan, carnation in the buttonhole, silk tie, armini suit, and tongue should all be equally smooth. Sartorial elegance and verbal eloquence are powerful substitutes for evidence. There's providence-based medicine. If the caring practitioner has no idea what to do next, the decision may be left in the hands of the Almighty. Too many clinicians, unfortunately, are unable to resist giving God a hand with the decision-making. Diffidence-based medicine. Some doctors see a problem and look for an answer. Others merely see a problem. The diffident doctor may do nothing from a sense of despair. This, of course, may be better than doing something merely because it hurts the doctor's pride to do nothing. Nervousness-based medicine. Fear of litigation is a powerful stimulus to over-investigate and over-treatment. In an atmosphere of litigation phobia, the only bad test is the test you didn't think of ordering. And finally, confidence-based medicine. This is restricted to surgeons. There are many conceptual frameworks that rank the levels of evidence, and I can never remember them unless they're right in front of me. For example, 1A is the systemic review with homogeneity of RCTs, and 1B is the individual randomized controlled trial, and the 1C is the all-or-none study. The 2A is the systematic review with homogeneity. The 2B is the individual cohort study. The 2C is outcomes research. The 3A is systematic review of case control studies. 3B is the individual case control study. 4 is the case series. And 5 is expert opinion with explicit clinical appraisal or based on physiology bench research or first principles. You know, in my experience. Those work well with dealing with reality-based processes. But as this podcast has noted from the beginning, it does not work with scams when there is no prior plausibility for the intervention. Of course, the volume of information makes it virtually impossible for an individual clinician to master the literature on an odd disease that may appear on the ER or in the wards. It is difficult to read and appreciate a paper above your pay grade. I can read an infectious disease paper with reasonable comfort, and although I am board certified in internal medicine, a paper on cardiology or nephrology would be very difficult for me to place in context. I have to use rules to help me understand it. For example, the phrase, it has been long known, actually means, I didn't look up the original reference. The phrase, a definite trend is evident, means, these data are practically meaningless. Of great theoretical and practical importance, means, interesting to me. While it has not been possible to provide definite answers to these questions, actually means an unsuccessful experiment, but I still hope to get it published. Three of the samples were chosen for detailed study, which means the results of the others didn't make any sense. Typical results are shown, i.e., this is a pretty graph. These results will be shown in a subsequent report, means I might get around to it sometime if I'm pushed or funded. The most reliable results are those obtained by Jones. He was my graduate assistant. It is believed that, means I think, it is generally believed that, means a couple of other people think so too. It is clear that much additional work will be required before a complete understanding of the phenomenon occurs, means I don't understand it. Correct within an order of magnitude, wrong. 
in my experience, once, in case after case, twice, in a series of cases, thrice. According to statistical analysis, rumor has it. A statistically oriented projection of significance of these findings, a wild guess. Thanks are due to Joe Blotz for assistance with the experiments and George Frank for valuable discussions. Blotz did the work and Frank explained to me what it meant. A careful analysis of obtained data. Three pages of notes were obliterated when I knocked over a glass of wine. And finally, it is hoped that this study will stimulate further investigation in this field. Means I give up. In the end, your best bet, if you don't know what to do, is to call somebody else. Someone like me. Someone who, within the limitations of life, has a relative mastery of the topic. But more importantly, it then becomes somebody else's problem to figure out what to do. Good luck. You will need it. That ends the 166th QuackCast. The references for this QuackCast are available at Science-Based Medicine with the blog entry of the same name, What Should We Do in the Absence of Evidence, from May 1st, 2015. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye.